1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Welcome back to TFR for the first episode of 2018. We're kicking off the year in a big way as we feature Eric Reese, author of The Lean Startup and The Startup Way. If you're wondering where buzzwords like MVP, split tests, and pivots were popularized, look no further than today's guest. Eric has had a breadth of experience working as a founder, VC at Kleiner Perkins, and consultant helping both startups and large corporates. Today, he weighs in on how his principles can be applied effectively in big business. In this episode, we discuss Eric's backstory, his response to Peter Thiel's disparaging comments about his methodology, the key concepts of the lean startup, why he wrote his new book, The Startup Way. If it works better for existing large organizations or those growth companies establishing culture and process, the biggest problems that Eric sees within corporations, how a lean innovation philosophy can work in organizations with principles that often run counter to it. Eric walks through an example where he applied his approach. He gives his response to Mark Suster's comments that organizations cannot innovate behind the moat. And we wrap up with his thoughts on how companies can remain innovative when the innovative employees often leave. All that and much more in today's interview. I put Eric on the spot a couple of times, and he answered in a very candid and thoughtful way. I appreciate his candor, and I hope you do as well. Here's the interview with Eric Reese. <laughs> Eric Ries is an entrepreneur and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup. He's the creator of the Lean Startup methodology, which has become a global movement practiced by individuals and companies around the world. Eric has advised on strategy for startups, venture capital firms, and large companies, including GE. He served as an EIR at Harvard Business School, Audio and Pivotal. And Eric is the founder and CEO of the Long-Term Stock Exchange. It's Eric's Lean Startup Methodology that underpins his latest book on innovation, The Startup Way. And he's here today to talk more about it. Eric, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So walk us through the backstory. How did you first get involved in tech and and startups?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's some ways, a very cliche story. I I was one of those kids who grew up programming computers in my parents' basement. Uh, You know, when I one of the greatest days of my childhood when I found out you could get paid for programming. I just thought <laughs> it's something you did, you know, for fun. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was going to be a programmer my whole career. That was that was definitely my plan. I uh, I got a computer science degree. I just I really love technology and software. But I happened to be in college during the dot com bubble, and so I got swept up into dot com mania. And if you've seen the movie The Social Network, I had the first half of the movie experience, where you know my friends and I create an amazing uh, company from scratch in our dorm room and, and the whole thing. But when the dot com bubble burst, uh, you know our company was no Facebook, so so we didn't have the experience of making a lot of money and suing each other and all that stuff. <laughs> but that, that was my entree into the startup tech world, and and once once I tried it, I was I was hooked. Awesome. So how much before
0: writing uh, The Lean Startup was uh, that experience?
1: So that was a full 10 years before the, the Lean Startup was published. Um, I got to do a series of startups after that. I moved out to Silicon Valley and I was like, I'm going to apprentice myself to the best you know, technologists and entrepreneurs I can find. And I did uh, the absolutely classic venture-backed startup thing where we joined a company that was going to spend five years and $50 million in stealth R&D. We had something like 200 employees before uh, customers ever saw the product. Big global launch, you know, uh, followed by this massive hockey stick that was supposed to materialize. And of course, you know, didn't. So I was just an engineer on that team. And I thought, you know, my job was to make sure the technology was highly scalable in anticipation of the customer demand that we were going to have. And of course we didn't really have any scalability problems, but not because my engineering was so great, because <laughs> we didn't have <laughs> any customers. And it was like, with was a weird experience, because like, wow, this is basically the same kinds of mistakes that I made in my dorm room, mm-hmm. but at a way higher price tag. You know, this is like two orders of magnitude more expensive. Wow. And I was just like, there's got to be a better way. And that that kind of set me on this path of that ultimately led to, to writing the lean startup in 2011 of trying to say, hey, there, there, there's got to be a better way.
0: So were you were you a student of uh, you know lean methodology? Were you studying Toyota production system? Um, I'm Nothing curious. like that.
1: No, no, no yeah, no. I, I encountered lean manufacturing very late in my career. Um, I I had done a bunch of these startups, and I was always the one inside each of these companies advocating for faster iteration, agile development, extreme programming, um, uh, getting customers involved more more directly. Uh, in a company I founded called InView, you know, I was the one who brought a uh, split testing, A-B testing into the company. And just to give you a sense of how much the world has changed, when I was trying to convince my team to use A-B testing, they're like, why are we going to use some direct marketing technique? What does that have to do with product development? And it wasn't like, it wasn't like today where you just go grab a, an A-B testing, you know, service off the shelf. I had to write my own A-B testing libraries because there weren't any. Wow, It's just a very different world than it has been in just a few years. So... So I always had this intuition that there was this better way to work. And, you know, I was lucky to have Steve Blank as an advisor and investor in in some of these companies. Uh, You know, he had this theory called customer development that was about uh, how to kind of understand what customers really want before it's too late. And, uh, you know, kind of putting some of his ideas together with some of these others, I was able to have success in my career. But I had a problem. I couldn't explain to anybody why it worked. It drove everybody crazy because I would say, look, you know, especially as as InView started to grow, you know, I was in charge of hiring all our engineers and I would hire someone who was far more experienced in the industry than me. And they'd show up and say, listen, kid, this isn't how it's done. You got to build a product requirements document, technical requirements document. We got to do this thing and that thing. And I'd have to say, listen, with all due respect, you work for me. So why don't we try it my way first? And then if that doesn't work, then we can talk about something different. And what was so interesting was we could see the evidence with our own eyes. Like our team was much more productive. We were able to get product out much faster. We had much better customer feedback. We could do what we would now call a pivot change in strategy without a change in vision uh, to get closer to that ideal. So we were having all this success. But then even the people who liked it were kind of like, but why? I don't understand why it works. It's like we were defying the laws of engineering as they had been taught. And so I was hunting around for ways to explain and describe this concept to people. And that's when I discovered lead manufacturing. And I was like, aha, finally, here's a conceptual vocabulary that with some tweaks can be used uh, to make sense of my experience.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I I don't want to put you on the spot here, but Steve was on the program about three, maybe a little three years ago, maybe a little longer than that. And uh, Steve mentioned that he mentioned Peter Thiel's famous comments where he sort of decried the MVP and the lean startup approach. Sure. Um, And Steve thought, you know, Peter was entirely wrong. But I'd love to hear your response uh, to Mr. Thiel's comments.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I actually think that Peter gets a lot of mileage out of attacking the straw man of the lean startup. So I don't actually think that he's wrong so much as he's always trying to prove a point. You gotta you gotta understand Peter is a multi dimensional chess player. You know, like he, he's up. He's always up to something. He's you yep. know. Yep. For those of us who study political philosophy, he you know he's a devotee of Leo Strauss. So there's the the uh, they call it the esoteric and the um, exoteric interpretation of what someone says. So I think I've I've had the conversation with him directly about this. So it's not like he's ill informed. I think that if you look at the specific recommendations that he makes about how to build a company, I don't really have any disagreement. You know, he praises Facebook for creating an early version of the product that could attack and dominate a small market. He doesn't think it should be called a minimum viable product. It should be called he has a different terminology that he prefers. But if you look at that, those of us the startup movement will say, Hey, that's, that's pretty much what we would recommend. So we don't have a disagreement there. I do think that what frustrates him, if I could kind of, Read between the lines, though, is a lot of people over the years have pitched him as a VC, the same old crappy pitch and kind of use lean startup as an excuse. So they said, hey, we don't have any vision. We're just iterating our way to find out what the market wants. And, and I, I hear that criticism so often that, that after being asked this question a number of times, I went back and I was like, you know what? I'm going to look. I'm going to reopen the lean startup. And I want to see on what page did I address this misconception? Because so I was like, boy, is it my fault that I didn't do a good job making this clear? And it's literally on page nine in the introduction where it says, look, this is not about replacing vision with experimentation. It's not about just asking customers what they want. Uh, It is about using experimental methods to test your vision to figure out which elements of your strategy are right. So, you know, I don't uh, I don't know what else to say about that. I think we've been really clear about what we're up to. And I think the kind of idea that we don't believe in vision or that MVP is a replacement for having some kind of long term plan uh, is a misconception.
0: Love it. So so for those of us that maybe read The Lean Startup some time ago or maybe some listeners that are, are newer to tech, um, can you give us a quick refresher on key concepts?
1: Sure. So the basic idea of The Lean Startup is whatever's in our business plan, whatever we think is going to happen with a startup, we don't know. Like The defining characteristic of a startup, of entrepreneurship, is the extreme uncertainty we face about the future. So it's not to say that we shouldn't have a plan or that we Uh, Don't believe in having a vision, as I was just talking about. In fact, I feel like I'm the last person in startup land that's pro-business plan. I think business plans are excellent, but not the fiction writing part of them where we speak in grandiose language in word. The Excel part of the business plan and what's valuable. So we have these predictions about how customers will behave in the future. And the theory of lean startups says, hey, those are hypotheses in the scientific sense. Those are predictions about what's going to happen. Let's treat them like we would treat a scientific hypothesis. Let's as quickly and inexpensively as possible experiment to discover which of those hypotheses are true and which ones are false. Uh, we call those experiments minimum viable products or MVPs because it's not about this is not about market research or some kind of theoretical or academic science. We say that everything a startup does is an experiment whether you admit it or not and once you adopt that experimental framework you can discover true startup efficiency which is not how do i achieve the specification with minimum effort but rather uh, how do i learn what i need to learn at minimum cost so we can uh, do things that are much less expensive than a full-blown product in order to discover what customers actually want how they will be, how they will really behave in the real world We call that process of continuous iteration the build, measure, learn feedback loop. And that's a whole, uh, for those who who know theory of constraints or maneuver warfare or lean manufacturing, uh, there's all this kind of ideas around cycle time and, and the heuristics we use to drive that cycle time down without sacrificing the inherent quality of the product itself. And last, if we discover that some aspect of our strategy is flawed, instead of persevering the plane straight into the ground, we should pivot to a better one but without abandoning the vision. So I think that's what makes entrepreneurship so hard is you have to be willing to be very flexible about certain things, but be really rigidly committed to other things and discovering which is which. That's really, to me, the essence of the entrepreneurial mindset.
0: So we talked a, a little bit about the lean methodology and uh, clearly you've written one of the most important books for founders. So so why'd you write The Startup Way?
1: So I can remember when Lean Startup was very controversial and people thought it was basically crazy. And then during the initial kind of hockey stick of interest in Lean Startup, I can remember all the questions I would get about different applications. Okay, how does it apply in consumer internet, enterprise software? How does it apply in a physical product? How does it, you know, just how does it apply in consumer electronics? How does it apply in healthcare or food? Or, you know, just that was the time when, I was literally in line at one of my favorite food trucks in San Francisco, and the guys behind the, the counter are like, "Hey, are you the lean startup guy?" And they're explaining to me how they use this food truck to, how, you know, do an MVP of a restaurant, and and it, you know, it's just like wow. an incredible expansion of ideas into new domains. It was very exciting. And then I kind of remember when, like, those questions ceased being really interesting and provocative, and sort of by by rote. You know, be asked the same question over and over again, and be like, "Well, how does it apply in food?" i be like, "Well, let me tell you how it applies in food. How does it apply in a hospital?" And I was like, "Oh, at a certain stage, hey, maybe the best way to get this information out would not be like to answer people's questions one company at a time, but to you know use some kind of one-to-many transmission technology, like a book." You know, it's like, "Whoa, hey, that's a good idea." <laughs> so it took me a lot. I was a little slow on the uptake that time. And a similar thing started to happen to me over the last five years. I have been. You know, as soon as Lean Startup was published, it was this rocket ship that that just drove all this interest in C-suites around the country, around the world, in adopting these these methods in all different kinds of companies. First of all, many of the early adopters of Lean Startup, their companies got big. So, you know, you think about like a Dropbox or a Twilio. When I first met them, they're just a few founders in a garage. Now those are huge companies. And so many of those founders were really interested in trying to figure out how do they maintain that startup DNA and that innovation culture as they scale. And that became kind of an interesting set of conversations. And at the same time, a number of uh, business executives, you know, CEOs of public companies, uh, cabinet secretaries in the government, just a lot of high – you know, large organizations were asking me to come in to say, hey, how do we recapture that startup DNA that's been lost or the ways that we can be more innovative? And the first couple times I did those like transformational projects, they were really interesting. So I built this program called FastWorks with GE. Uh, we did this big program at Intuit. Um, I was, you know, tangentially involved, but a number of lean startup uh, allies built uh, the United States Digital Service and 18F inside the federal government. So I kind of was seeing these different patterns. And then as word got out of the success of those transformations, as well as more and more of the startup started to grow larger, I was being asked more and more often to answer these questions about how do the mechanics work at scale? And I had that same kind of insight was like, hey, wait a minute, maybe this is not the best done like one company at a time, but but through some kind of one-to-many vehicle. And that that's ultimately what led to the startup way.
0: Who would you say is the, the audience for the startup way? Is it different than it was for the Lean Startup?
1: It's confusing. Uh, You know, ever since the Lean Startup was published, my audience has always been divided between folks who you would recognize as like scrappy entrepreneurs, you know, who kind of looked the part, and then these more corporate innovation people. And it's always been that split audience. And so the startup way is no different. I think it um, it has been well received both by, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs and also by founders. Uh, because many of the examples in the book like, are intentionally chosen from bureaucratic organizations, that probably skews a little more corporate than, uh, than the Lean Startup did. But actually, my true mission and passion with this is not so much to transform companies that are already bureaucratic, although I, I'm happy to help when called upon. I really think the most important thing is for us as an ecosystem – to influence the next generation of entrepreneurs so that they won't build those their next companies. The new companies that are coming up should not be built to this old 20th century bureaucratic template. Like we can do better. There's a better blueprint available. And if we start those companies right with the right blueprint from the start, we won't have to do a corporate transformation. They'll be built for continuous transformation from the beginning.
0: Yeah. So that's a, an interesting distinction there. I mean, is this something that you think can be applied as a transformative tool uh, you know, for large corporations with a set culture, or do you think it, it really has application for uh, earlier stage companies that are sort of trying to establish that, that culture? Yeah.
1: I've been, I just, you know, I've been on book tour with this book. And so I've, you know, I've been in entrepreneurial audiences and uh, corporate audiences all around the world. And no matter who I'm speaking to, the most controversial thing I say right now is that the process of a startup going through a hyper growth expansion, that S curve, that that process is structurally similar to the process that a, a big corporate goes through when it does a company wide transformation. This pisses off everybody. People in the startup world can't bear to be compared to big, dumb corporates. So like how dare you <laughs> suggest such a thing? You know, an entrepreneur. Like, I, I believe that people that drive that transformation are entrepreneurs, just like the kids in Soma and a lot of VCs have upbraided me for that. How dare I suggest such a thing? You know, <laughs> entrepreneurs are the hardest working, smartest and best looking people on the planet. But my experience is that's just not true. I know corporate people just as innovative, just as hardworking, uh, just as talented. But a lot of corporate people are offended too. how dare I suggest that some peon, you know, in kid like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, in the early days that that's somehow the same as their big, highfalutin, fancy corporate stuff. So I get it from both sides. And I kind of remember that controversy, that feeling of controversy and being called crazy from the early days of Lean Startup. So I actually view it as a good sign. But, yeah, I, I'm, I was a skeptic, too, except that I've now seen it really up close and personal over and over and over again that there are these deep, deep structural similarities. And it shouldn't be a surprise why. It goes back to the word blueprint I used a moment ago. Even our most innovative companies today are built to the exact same org structure. and They have almost the exact same corporate systems. That these big dumb corporates have. It's it's shocking how similar they are. Such that if I reincarnated the ghost of Alfred Sloan, who built like the original matrix management uh multi-division management system way back in the 1920s, and I showed him the X-ray of pick your favorite unicorn startup, I said, Here's the org chart, he'd say, Oh yeah, that thing, cool. You know, like he'd say, Yeah, you've made some tweaks and improvements along the way, but it's still fundamentally recognizable. And I just think, you know, surely we can all agree that a few things have changed since 1920 that maybe, maybe would call for uh, some new management ideas, some new structures.
0: Couldn't agree more. So in part one of the book, you're talking a lot about sort of today's modern company. Um, yeah. What in your estimation is the biggest problem with uh, today's corporations?
1: So today's companies are built from the ground up for predictability and low variance situations that everything's about making and beating a forecast, which is fine. People view that as some kind of criticism or, or something bad, but no, that's good. Uh, that's why our global supply chains work at all. Most of business is highly repeatable, so it makes sense to be able to model it and forecast it. I have no objection to that. But where do accurate forecasts come from? My claim is that an accurate forecast is always an extrapolation from a long and stable operating history. And anytime we don't have one of those elements, our forecasting ability goes down. So if the world changes around us and the world gets more unstable, it gets harder to forecast. But often we're the source of instability ourselves because we're building a new product and we don't know what it's going to work or, you know, like we're entering a new market and we're not sure how it's going to work out. So anytime we have the uncertainty about what's going to work in the future, we can't make an accurate forecast and all of a sudden we can't hold people accountable anymore. Because the fundamental like, operating mechanism of our companies today is you make a forecast and beat it. That's how the stock price works. That's how promotions work. That's how incentive pay works. So we ask our internal entrepreneurs to make forecasts and beat them. But all of us in the venture world know at a seed stage startup, forecasting is a joke. Okay, The reason yeah. startups make forecasts at seed stage is because some VC made them do it, and so the night before the meeting, when they were fundraising, they made a spreadsheet because they had to make a spreadsheet, and that's <laughs> what it is, you know. And it's, it's it's not it's worth not even worth the paper it's printed on. But and 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 today modern VCs have really figured this out. Like in the old days, VCs would sometimes try to use those business plan forecasts as tools of accountability. Like I remember one of my early startup side, an investor once who said, "Hey, it's six months since your investment, and your plan said you would have X number of customers. How come you don't?" And I was like, oh, my God, you believed that forecast? <laughs> like, you understand I just made that up the night before, you know, like the best I could because you asked me to make a spreadsheet. <laughs> like I, didn't, I was like, eh, you weren't serious, right? Well, most VCs today, I think, have gotten smart about this to understand that, you know, whatever a, whatever an entrepreneur promises you by by way of forecasting is at best a loose approximation. So the problem for most corporate structures is – what do you do then? We, we, it doesn't make sense to hold people accountable to the forecast. The forecast is just a fantasy plan. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have any accountability. When, whenever you have a corporate project with no accountability, it becomes like a tumor. and everyone knows these like you know corporate IT projects that just spin out of control waterfall style and they consume infinite budget and time and they just never ship. like you don't want to do that. So like I would say that the fundamental defect of our contemporary corporate structure is we don't have a rigorous methodology. For holding people accountable under conditions of extreme uncertainty.
0: So this is an, an interesting point because you know I don't think we're going to sort of change the uh, modus operandi for corporations overnight in in nope. forecasting, right? You know, nope. You've also said that you know the way to stay on top uh, can be traced to two things: treating employees like customers and treating the business units like startups. Uh, This also seems to run counter to a lot of common sort of capitalist mentality where there's a focus on margins, incremental product development, creating value for shareholders and and not necessarily employees. Um, So, you know, are you suggesting a significant cultural and organizational shift, um, a strategic change? And if so, how is that possible to achieve?
1: So here's the problem with this. I am quite I'm quite a radical. okay I am a revolutionary. I think our entire mental model of how corporations work and the management systems we're accustomed to uh, is due for a significant overhaul.
0: Hmm.
1: And anyone who says that that's not true, I just like, have you really been paying attention to the 21st century? Like, like we we're going through the kind of crazy changes that our management ancestors could only have dreamed of. I mean, probably could hard to imagine. And I think those of us who've been paying attention can all agree that we have already lived through the calmest years of the 21st century, right? So the future is going to be even more crazy than now. And as crazy as now feels, it's going to seem like the good old days pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. When people hear that, they sometimes are like, oh, one of these Silicon Valley assholes who's just going to say everything's wrong and I'm smarter than you and blah, blah, blah. And they're not going to have – it's just going to be some manifesto for change and there's no details. There's no ma- So like here's the crazy thing. The kind of revolutionary change I'm talking about is totally achievable, and I've seen it with my own eyes. So, of course, if you read the book, I tell story after story after story of everyday normal people that are not Silicon Valley magic wizards or anything like that. They're just regular people given the opportunity to work in a new way and being absolutely supercharged by the experience. And I'm not just talking about one project, you know, here and there. I mean, at GE FastWorks, we've trained something like seventy thousand people uh, in it. So, like, these are significant transformational uh, efforts. And the problem is, they work so well that when I describe them to most managers, it sounds a little bit like magic. And I'm not. Promising overnight nirvana. Like the GE Fastworks program took several years to get going, and it's still, frankly, in its early days because although 70,000 people sounds like a lot, 300,000 people work at GE. So, you know, we're still in the early days of it. Uh, so, what I would say is if you read the startup way, it is explicitly not a manifesto. Can we just agree that we have too, too many manifestos like are like broadside? Uh, prescription about how to experiment with these methods and um, it's broken down into like distinct phases of kind of how to get started how to start small how to make sure we scale fast and it's full of um, really detailed uh, uh, just explanations of how I've seen the negotiation happen between the information office and the other functional gatekeepers of the corporation so like next time you read one of these business manifestos, be like, okay, that sounds great. But like, how exactly do I get finance to implement this? Okay, what about legal? What about IT? What about HR? What about marketing? What about supply chain? What about, what about, what about, got all those details uh, in in the book. So I think what I would say to people who are skeptical that this is possible is you got to try it. This is an experimental scientific theory. You got to try it yourself. And luckily, innovation is relatively cheap. So you can try it relatively quickly and easily if you want to. Uh so kind of what's what's our excuse for inaction, you know? We we can do it. We have the tools now. Let's go.
0: Yeah, I liked one of your comments was related to uh how if you ask a lot of CEOs who's responsible for innovation, he says we all are.
1: Uh, I know, can you believe <laughs> that?
0: <laughs> but if you asked them, you know, who's responsible for finance or for product development or for HR, <laughs> it's clearly so not everybody
1: it was like uh everyone's in charge of finance so we don't need a financial function and we don't need a cfo but also like can you imagine we're like oh you know what to foster more finance thinking in the organization we're going to create a finance lab uh we're going to build this cool building that's like all accountingy and we're going to put it in you know in whatever city you know like <laughs> the, the equivalent of silicon valley and we're going to like have cool accounting stuff happen there and like we will I will basically delegate finance to the finance lab and just like that's just it's, it sounds so ridiculously stupid and yet that's how we talk about innovation in corporate settings we have an innovation lab and innovation is everybody's responsibility or even for companies that have a chief innovation officer they have no operational responsibilities they just ride around on a segue and think great thoughts yeah like, right. no this is ridiculous i call it the missing function in our corporate structure It's as dumb as if we were missing finance or marketing or IT or HR. We need a function. I think we should just call it entrepreneurship. And we should get as good at entrepreneurship as we are at supply chain management today. Like take it seriously as a function, uh, figure out how it integrates with the other functions, build a career path around it, have its own metrics for advancement. And what's super cool about it and this kind of gets towards towards the end of the book, not, you know, spoiler alert, uh, this is what the book (laughs) is driving towards, it enables what I call the unified theory of entrepreneurship, that today corporations do a number of different things. I think I have a list of nine of them in the book that happen in different parts of the org chart today that are managed completely separately that I think are actually the same. So if you're building a new product from scratch, that's considered product development. But if we're buying a seed stage startup, that's considered corp dev,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And the way you know these are the same thing is ha- as if you ever sat in the meeting where corp dev has to hand off the thing you just bought to product development. I have product development sitting there like, oh, what? You paid eight hundred million dollars for what? And corp dev's like, good luck. You know, like, yeah, you're going to make all these great <laughs> revenue growth and productivity things. Like, see you later. And it's like this is a ridiculous handoff. And of course, going back to the theme of accountability, because accountability is the foundation of all management. How do you hold this group accountable if the if the productivity savings don't materialize? Like you know these stories where like you buy something for eight hundred million dollars and then you like sell it back to the founders for eighteen million dollars. Okay, so we lost seven hundred million dollars. Whose fault is it? Well, corp dev <laughs> yeah. says product development didn't do a good job commercializing it. Right. And product development says corp dev bought a lemon. What were we supposed to do? And we just do that over and over and over again. It's even more ridiculous because a lot of the time the company is that you're buying is founded by an ex-employee. So why are we calling that a corp dev victory instead of an HR failure? Yeah, The person had the idea when they were working for you in the first place, but they couldn't implement it within your corporate walls. Why is that good? So anyway, I think we should treat all three of those problems The product development problem, the HR problem, and the corp dev problem—those should should be managed centrally under a single organization. We should call that functional uh, location on the org chart. Entrepreneurship.
0: I like it. I've actually so I've spent five to six years in corp dev and about three years in product development, and uh, I I feel your pain on this one. It's you've uh, seen
1: it from both sides, right?
0: Oh God! And it's uh, when you're in the organization. I mean, just I mean every organization is different, right? but an approach towards in- innovation i mean it just it can be a stifling atmosphere right to yeah. to try and move the needle and get things done and be agile is just almost completely counter to sort of the the way a lot of these these large companies work
1: totally and you know what i have to give credit to alexander osterwalder who recently wrote a terrific article saying that this has to be a board level and an investor level concern in private and public companies and i just thought that's so right on like we we just allow companies to spend MA dollars in a totally undisciplined way and have these make these kinds of mistakes with basically no accountability when we know there's a better way. And so, you know, for a company to be as equally rigorous in its M and A activity as it is in its new product development, that's gotta be a board concern.
0: Couldn't agree more. If memory serves, he's the uh, the originator of the business model canvas. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, that's the very same.
0: Got it. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. So you you talked about this concept of the big picture and the unified theory of entrepreneurship, but it sounds a little abstract. Can you you break that down and explain it a bit more?
1: Sure. So where the rubber meets the road is like, what do you do with individual teams? So let me just tell you a story um, of one team. This team was building what's called a diesel reciprocating platform at GE. Now, when I first met this team, I was there at the invitation of the of chairman and CEO and a number of the top executives asked me to come in and see if Lean Startup could be applicable to GE. And the chairman, uh, Jeff Immelt at the time, said, you know, chairman's prerogative. I get to pick the project, the pilot project. And to hell with <laughs> no, no way is it going to be some software app thing for this guy from Silicon Valley. <laughs> Let's pick something hard, okay. something industrial, something, you know, real heavy metal. So they said it's gonna, you're going to work on a diesel reciprocating platform. I said, "Hey, no problem," but I just have one question: What is a diesel reciprocating platform? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and you know, they looked at me like, "Oh boy," you know, Silicon Valley dude, right? So they had to explain to me: This is a diesel engine that's used in fracking and uh, mobile drilling, uh, marine electric, locomotive. Whereas I used to kind of have a little mnemonic for myself, like, okay, uh, you know, on land, on by sea, on a boat, on a plane, by train. Wherever you need an engine, this is called the Series X engine is there. (laughs) And uh, they asked me to do a workshop at GE's legendary Crotonville facility as part of a pilot program. So I showed up there. Beautiful business school style classroom. If you've never been, Crotonville is an amazing place with deep, rich history. And in the room is me at the front of the room. In the first row, we have three people from the Series X team who've been summoned up from Texas to this meeting. And in the back of the room, we have 25 corporate vice presidents. You know, there just to observe. So it's not like the greatest setup for a workshop in history. These four <laughs> guys from Texas, you know, have to be here with me at this workshop. Uh, and, and so we started out by, I asked the team, could you please present the currently approved business case for the Series X engine? to get us all on the same page. And they said, sure, no problem. And they started to explain, here are the five use cases. you know, stationary drilling, here's mobile, electric, you know, all the different use cases. They showed the the business plan. This was going to, the company was planning to invest something like $300 million over the course of five years to develop this brand new technology, global launch. And then they showed a slide that I'll never forget as long as I live. It is revenue forecast by year for the Series X engine for the next, I think it was 25 years. There it is. There's a bar chart, and this is the funny part. First of all, the first five bars are blank. They've included the bars on the chart, but there's no bar there. It's just five blank spaces for the five years of stealth R&D, followed by an escalating series of bars that have the typical hockey stick shape, the beautiful hockey stick shape of all fantasy plans. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't know what a diesel reciprocating platform is, but I know this shape very well. well <laughs> you know, I have made this slide many times. Like step into my <laughs> office, my friends.
0: Hockey Six just, and Jakers, love them.
1: Yeah, this is this is Silicon Valley's like third leading export after hype and buzzwords. <laughs> so, you know, now we're talking. And I said, hey, everybody in the room, raise your hand if you believe this forecast. And I'm not making this up. Every person in the room, raise their hand. Wow, And they were a little bit miffed. They were like, hey, kid, I don't think you understand. The brightest minds of the GE Corporation have vetted this forecast. And this is the basis of our $300 million investment. And how dare you suggest? And I'm like, hold on, hold on. I'm so sorry. No offense intended. But can I just get a quick reality check? No, really. Which of you honestly believes that in the year 2035, we're going to make exactly, you know, whatever it was, $4.8 billion in revenue? They're like, well, when you put it that way, all the hands are <laughs> down, right? Like, well, okay, exactly that much, and okay. And it's just like, come on.
0: We That's don't a, know. The only certainty with forecasts is that they're not accurate.
1: Yeah, like, come on. And, like, we're, this is in the energy business. You can't even forecast the price of natural gas versus diesel. Like, one year out, you're going to tell me what the utilization rate of this is going to be in, <laughs> you know, in the developing world in 2035? Like, come on. So can we have an honest conversation about what we know versus what we believe we hope what are our hypotheses and of course the team was spending most of its time and energy focusing on the technical what we call leap of faith assumptions how do we get the efficiency to be right how do we figure out uh, all these like very hard technical problems in material science in uh, in engine construction in supply chain and and of course buried in appendix b you know sub bullet six you know footnote seven in the business plan is like, oh, and by the way, we have to build a new distribution network from scratch to go up against an entrenched competitor who has excellent service and support. <laughs> and you're like, you know, I felt a little bit like Monty Python, like you already got one of those, <laughs> right? Like it's like oh, we're gonna go get the Holy Grail, like oh, I already got one, like is it, <laughs> is it lying around? You just you got to get or you have to build this new thing from scratch. And of course they're like, no, no, we're gonna build a new one from scratch. It's like, well, when are we gonna do that? obviously after the product is done oh great like okay 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 guys so if it turns out that one of our leap of faith assumptions about what customers want is wrong when do we want to find that out do we want to find that out now or in five years so we start to have a real conversation about what would the minimum viable product look like for the series x engine and a running joke through all my years at ge was listen kid nobody wants to buy a minimum viable engine you know, these things explode. We're like, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. You, know, you don't want to fly in an airplane They say pilot comes on. Like, Congratulations, we're testing a minimum viable engine today, <laughs> right? No, of course not. We're not going to cut corners in quality, safety, and compliance. What we're going to do is think about how do we make the customer requirements easier so that we can solve the engineering problem sooner. I hate the word requirements in product development because seriously, the laws of physics are required. Everything else is optional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm so we have hypotheses so anyway we're having the conversation with the engineers and and we tried to, and we figured out okay if we we were willing to focus on just one of the use cases maybe we could get the product to market you know in 2 years instead of 5 years cuz you know making this thing work on a boat is really different than making it work in a you know stationary drilling environment and then we started to talk about okay if we were willing to skip some of the supply chain issues if we said look I don't need to create like 10,000 engines just give me one engine a prototype that i that's like that works and that is safe and has been compliance, but doesn't have a full supply chain behind it. You know, how long would that take? Oh, maybe more like a year. And then one of the engineers said something I'll never forget. He said, well, you know, if you're willing to pick this specific use case, we already have an engine that's kind of similar and we could kind of modify it to have the performance characteristics of the Series X. I'm like, ooh, how long is that going to take? And they're like, oh, you know, maybe three months. They're like, okay, maybe six months. And I'm like, hey, of corporate vice presidents in the back of the room, Any of you have a customer that might want to buy this engine? And one of the VPs is like, as a matter of fact, I know just who we could sell it to. And I'm like, okay, sweet. Here we go. Minimum viable product in six months instead of 60 months. A full order of magnitude improvement in cycle time. This is going to be a home run. I was like celebrating prematurely. Until one of the officers in the back of the room said, hold on, I have a question. What the bleep is the point? of selling only one engine, right? Like a second ago, we were talking about making billions of dollars. And now what's our profit gonna be on one engine, like a thousand dollars? And of course, one of the helpful engineers is like, oh no, no, sir, Uh, we're actually gonna lose money on the first sale, (laughs) because we have to sell it at the Series X price. And he's like, "Ah, you're gonna lose money? What are you talking about? Just like he couldn't take it anymore. And I had to be like, listen, sir, you're totally right. to answer your question, if we already know that the plan is going to work, then this whole thing is a waste of time. There's no point in doing it. We don't need to learn anything. And I, I'm not making this up. He was like, great. <laughs> okay, good, then I'm out of here. You know, like He was totally satisfied with that answer. And luckily for me, his colleagues, the other VPs in the room said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, buddy. Didn't we just say a minute ago that we're not sure about this forecast and we don't know what's going to happen in the future? And they started to have a conversation amongst themselves About their leap of faith assumptions and what kind of experiments are needed, and then they were off to the racing. And I worked with that team as a coach. They were the first pilot program of hundreds, and then thousands. Um, And what I what I think startup and VC people sometimes find hard to believe that team leader is a founder, just like the guys here in San Francisco. And that team had just the kind of entrepreneurial energy and spirit uh, you see in Y Combinator or wherever. They just you know, they work in a corporate setting. So I, I tell you that story, that's kind of like the whole story, the whole theory in Microcosm. Like That's how we got started with one project, reconceiving it as a startup rather than as a corporate committee and changing the structures around that company, around that one team, how they were funded, how we held them accountable, the metrics we use. We created a board for them to report to, uh, you know, it's like using a lot of the, the management systems we have pioneered in the startup movement.
0: Bringing them into a corporate environment. Love it. So this kind of relates to uh, a point that Mark Suster made when he was on the program, um, where he stated that it's it's nearly impossible to innovate behind the moat, uh, meaning that large corporations should invest in venture and startups that are on the outside. Yeah, right. Of course. Because it's you know it's too hard to disrupt from the inside. Uh, yeah. You cannibalize your your existing P and L. So yep. Yep. how would you respond to, to Mark's comments?
1: Well, Mark and I have had this conversation, too, and and I I respect I respect his point of view, but I respectfully disagree. And and I don't think that he's coming from a bad place. Uh, If you'd asked me that same question 10 years ago, I would have answered it in the exact same way he answers it today. So I just think he hasn't had the chance to see what I've seen. Um, And look, and the business theory, dominant business theories say that you can't you can't do this. The innovator's dilemma makes it impossible to do this behind the moat. But uh, I've seen it up close. It just it's just a fact. It can be done but it requires a real change in how you do team construction. So in the book, I try to outline a series of practices that we in the startup movement universally practice, but we never talk about, you know, like we don't talk about it as a management system. We just pretend that uh, startups are just loosey goosey and do whatever you want. The founder can do whatever, but like, that's not true. We have very specific uh, approach that we do to like how teams are funded. So like, can you imagine if a VC, Made a million-dollar seed investment in a company, and then a few months later said, oh, you know what? We're having a bad quarter. Can I have some of the money back? Like, <laughs> no. that VC would be out <laughs> of business instantly, right? Like, that would be a death sentence. Doesn't it would happen. never, never happen, right? But that's that's a very – like, the fact that that never happens tells you something about a management system. We consistently do what we call metered funding versus the entitlement funding of corporate Setups. Every startup has a board. I don't care how wacky it is. So we always have a board structure. I sat in so many startup board meetings, like many, many startup board meetings. There's a lot of differences in terms of, you know, specifically how we run the company and the culture and the whatever, but like the topics of conversation are basically the same. The kinds of metrics that we look at are are like, they're not the exact same metrics, but there's the same kind of metrics. Our beliefs about that small teams can beat big teams, right? Like that's like one of our most universal and cherished beliefs. You know, our, our faith in meritocracy, although we often fall short of the ideal, we have these universal beliefs and practices. So if we're willing at great expense and tremendous political difficulty, but if we're willing to replicate those same beliefs in a corporate setting, you can innovate behind the moat. You don't only have to invest uh, in venture. And here's what's really funny to me. When our companies, our Silicon Valley company grow up, they forget these same lessons. So, like, when you're in Y Combinator, everybody knows that small teams beat big teams. But then you'd see all these giant tech companies throw big teams at problems. It's like they forgot the fundamental lesson of Y Combinator. And, in fact, I was talking to a YC grad whose company is, like, 500, 700 people, I think, now. And he was recounting to me a very frustrating conversation he was having with one of his product managers, where he had told them to go build a new product on their platform and take them into a new market segment, high uncertainty, you know, visionary product. And He's like, "Listen, you have my full support, my full backing. You know, go nuts." And that team went off, and they were doing stuff. And you know, the founder was busy; been running his core business, so he's busy, busy, busy. But he saw the project. That project was like on the deck of funding. You know, he got regular updates from his product head of product about all the different things they were working on, and it was status green this whole time. Checks in with them like six months later. Hey, how's it going? Just walking by see, you know, tell me about what you've learned from the products you've shipped, customers, you know, feedback you've gotten. And they're like, No, we haven't shipped anything yet. And he's like, What? They're like, no, we're still working on the requirements document. The like, what? Like, well, we first had to make sure we had to get the brand sign off from the marketing team that this is going to be compatible with our brand architecture. He's like, uh-huh. And then we had to go talk to the scalability engineering team and make sure that it was compatible with them. And we've just started working on the customer service response plan and the press release. And we've got the QA team, like, ready to go. And he's like, okay, but have you built anything at all? I get you haven't shipped anything, but have you actually built anything? They're like, no, no, we're almost ready to start implementation. <laughs> founder was like, are you bleeping kidding me? Like he was ready to take their head off. He's like, don't you realize that if we had adopted this way of working, when we founded this company, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because the company would be dead. And the poor product manager was like, no, I wasn't there. (laughs) Like, I didn't know that. You know, what are you talking about? he's like, these are the rules, right? And the founder was like really mad. And I was having this, I was kind of coaching this founder. I said, hold on, hold on, hold up. I get that you're mad at this product manager, but whose fault is this really? If you had pitched this plan to Paul Graham when you were in Y Combinator, what would Paul have said? And he's like, oh, man, if, if I had dared suggest such a thing, Paul would have humiliated me in front of the whole class. <laughs> Come on, he would have taken my – and I was like, okay. And he's like, but you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I never would have gotten this far long before I pitched this to Paul, like I would have been embarrassed at the weekly dinners with my partner, like, you know, like long before it got to the point where Paul Graham is chewing me out in front of the whole class, like I would have realized that this was a bad idea. I'm like, okay. So all the things you just mentioned, the weekly dinner, the demo day, the fundraising, the mentors, the partners, Paul, like how much of that infrastructure have you provided to this product manager? He's like, Oh, none. Right. So you're mad at him. But you wouldn't have even been able to do this if you didn't have the massive support system of Silicon Valley behind you. So whose fault is it again? Who are we supposed to be mad at? And that guy, you know, they was like took the lesson to heart. They created a, an internal Y Combinator for their product managers and for their new products. They have a, a quarterly demo day that they show. I mean, like they really like took it seriously. Wow! And they're way back there. And they're able to do stuff behind the moat that they previously weren't able to do. So. I think even we in the in the startup movement have to have to kind of take this lesson to heart and realize that we have to maintain our beliefs even as we scale.
0: Well, it gets it gets more and more difficult, right? As you grow, um, of and sometimes you lose the entre, you know, the entrepreneurial minded folks, and uh, you know, the agile folks, and those that yep. yep. kind of have this, uh, you know, more innovative mindset. So. You know what would you say to those that claim that all the entrepreneurs and all the innovative folks leave the large corporations, and those that stay are well, not right. the ones that are inclined to embrace your principles?
1: I mean, look that that is an empirical statement of fact about what happens today. But the idea that that's a law of nature rather than an indictment of our HR policies is ludicrous to me. Mm, mm. Like, if pe- if the good people are quitting, why? It's not an intrinsic condition of the corporation. It's just that you ha- you don't have a way to put them to work in an environment where they're productive. You can't ask them to flex and become corporate drones. Like, that's not right. But, you know, you have to find some other way of putting them to work. And if you have the entrepreneurial function and what we call it, the startup, as an atomic unit of work. Like there's certain problems in life where you're just like, gosh, a startup is the right corporate tool to use on this problem. If you have that method, I mean, Amazon is terrific at this, right? They have their two pizza teams. And when they want to try something new like AWS or whatever, they just throw a two pizza team at it. And they and therefore, there's a place for entrepreneurial style leaders to thrive and grow. We can create that same management infrastructure in every company.
0: I love it. I love it. I, I founded my own disruptive product, but it was within an organization. It took me three years. And I had one executive that was championing the process, but everybody else was against it. And it was very, very difficult. And just to get the whole thing through, it had to be accretive on both top line and bottom line. So, you know, it, it couldn't really cannibalize the business. It was it was a challenge on many fronts and ultimately it drove me out of the organization. So we had a lot of success with it and it there you go. it was a banner success, but you know, ultimately I couldn't thrive within within the walls of that corporation and it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I I definitely appreciate appreciate the vision here with the startup way.
1: Yeah, look, I, I get that it's controversial, but I, I I really believe we can do better.
0: Eric, if we could have any topic or any guest here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it?
1: Ooh, that is a great question. Um, I think, you know, I don't know how much you've done on diversity and inclusion, but I feel like that is like the, the topic uh, for us as an industry right now. And it's not just, you know, as a, a matter of moral necessity, which of course it is, um, but Also because the size of our sector is being artificially constrained. There was an amazing new study that came out uh, the other day where they reported that America could have four times as many inventors uh, if we gave every child equal access to uh, the kind of networks and resources that the uh, future inventors have. So like the size of the VC asset class and the size of the sort of ecosystem is being artificially constrained by the exclusion of folks who need to be here. So, you know, I, I would. I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a number of amazing people, you know, then there's, there's kind of the Susan Fowlers of the world or Frida Kapoor Klein, or even Ellen Powell, um, who are pioneering, uh, this, you know, in the, in the VC world, you have Eileen Lee and, and Murico and I, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on, but I feel like if, if you have not spoken to those folks, if you haven't made that a topic of the, of the program, I would really encourage you to do so.
0: Eric, what a uh, person in the startup community has influenced you most and why?
1: Well, it's hard to get out of the gravitational orbit of Steve Blank because he surely is, is larger than life. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I uh, am so grateful to him for taking a chance on me early in my career.
0: He's amazing. And finally, just to wrap up here, Eric, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: I'm very easy to connect with. Um, you can learn more about the new book at thestartupway.com. Um, my personal blog is called Startup Lessons Learned, and uh, we every year put on a, a Lean Startup conference at leanstartup.co. So uh, between those uh, those tidbits, I, I think you ought to be able to get a hold of me.
0: Awesome. Well, for the past four years, I've been looking forward to to the day that I, I interview Eric Reese. So this has been a huge pleasure for me, and uh, I appreciate you doing it.
1: Oh, uh, it's really my pleasure. Thanks, and and thanks for really, uh, really insightful interview.
0: All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time. And share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.